Here we are inside the theatre. It's a fine afternoon in 1595, a time when all performances were given during the day as there was no theatre lighting. What a din! I can hardly hear myself think. The place is full of people drinking beer or ale, eating nuts and talking very loudly. It's nothing like the theatre as we know it. Let me just get out of this noise. And look at the actual building. The theatre is wooden, with a thatched roof that covers seats on the outside, leaving the stage and the standing area in the centre uncovered, open to the elements. The stage is pretty bare. No sophisticated sets here. There's a trapdoor in the floor and a room towards the back, the discovery room, where actors emerge from. Above the stage is a balcony for the musicians. Later on, this will be used for Juliet's balcony scene. In front of the stage, most of the audience stand to watch the play unfold. Those standing are called groundlings. They are the poor of London, who get no frills admission at a cheap price. Remember, in Shakespeare's day, this was the people's number one form of entertainment, and the plays weren't written generally for the few, but for the masses, to appeal to soap opera viewers, if you like. Now, a really important fact to know is that Romeo and Juliet was not an original story. Shakespeare mostly took stories that people already knew and cleverly retold them. His skill was in the retelling, in bringing the characters and stories to life. So Romeo and Juliet comes from an ancient story that was already well known as an epic poem, The Tragical History of Romeus and Juliet by Arthur Brooke. Shakespeare used this as his source for Romeo and Juliet. In fact, he follows it very faithfully in terms of plot and character relationships. So let's get on with the play then. The prologue. Enter the chorus. Two households, both alike in dignity, in fair Verona where we lay our scene. From ancient grudge break to new mutiny, where civil blood makes civil hands unclean. From forth the fatal loins of these two foes, a pair of star-crossed lovers take their life, whose misadventured piteous overthrows doth with their death Bury their parents' strife. So here we have it. There are two households in Verona, that's in Italy, who have an ancient feud. So it's like the Mafia. The families fight and war with each other over an old argument or misunderstanding that neither will back down on. A son and daughter from the heads of these households will fall in love, but fate will not allow them to be together. Cruel circumstances will force them to take their own lives, and those desperate acts will end the feud forever. That's it then. Eight lines from one actor and the story's been told. Let's all go home then. Forget the nuts and beer. Ah, only joking. But why has Shakespeare told us the story already? Why spoil the ending? Well, remember, I just said that the story is an ancient one, already well known to the audience, so the chorus isn't giving anything away, but is attracting attention and getting the groundlings quiet and primed to see the tragedy of two star-crossed lovers possibly the most famous words from the play. They set the tone that fate and destiny will destroy these two pure lovers and not any faults of their own. 
We'll come back to this point later, as this is the only play of Shakespeare's where we have characters destroyed by fate. In his later tragedies, Shakespeare writes faults and flaws into his characters that prove to be their downfall. But Romeo and Juliet are pretty straightforward teenagers who simply fall in love. The fearful passage of their death-marked love and the continuance of their parents' rage, which but their children's end naught could remove, is now the two hours' traffic of our stage. The which, if you with patient ears attend... What here shall miss, our toil shall strive to mend. And with a bow, he leaves the stage. So we have the plot, in a nutshell. So let's look at the lines themselves. The chorus reads 14 lines in the form of a Shakespearean sonnet, with a rhyme scheme that goes A, B, A, B, C, D, C, D, E-F, E-F, G-G. This English sonnet form had more or less been pioneered by Shakespeare, by the way. Act 1, Scene 1. A Verona Street. So the chorus has left the stage empty for Samson and Gregory to begin the play for real. These characters are servants from the Capulet's household, Juliet's family. They're already a little pumped up, ready to fight, and they're looking for some trouble. Gregory, on my word, we'll not carry coals. No, for them we should be colliers. I mean, and we be in collar, we'll draw. Aye, while you live, draw your neck out of collar. So right away we have Shakespeare making puns, little plays on words. The Elizabethan audiences loved puns. So collier, C-O-L-L-I-E-R, which is another word for a coal miner, is then linked to Collar, spelt C-H-O-L-E-R, which is anger. And then collar, spelt C-O-L-L-A-R, like a dog collar. All to show that these two servants are just waiting for an excuse to fight the Montagues. Samson shows how he is itching for a fight. I strike quickly being moved. But thou art not quickly moved to strike. A dog of the house of Montague moves me. Seeing the Montague's dog is enough to get me in the fighting mood. To move is to stir, and to be valiant is to stand. Therefore, if thou art moved, thou runst away. Gregory seems unable to resist making jokes, but he may also be trying to diffuse or calm Samson, who is so tightly wound that he's liable to start a big fight. A dog of that house shall move me to stand. I will take the wall of any man or maid of Montague's. That shows thee a weak slave, for the weakest goes to the wall. The punning gets crude and sexual. As Samson says, he will fight with the men, but thrust the women to the wall. Tis true, and therefore women, being the weaker vessels, are ever thrust to the wall. Therefore I will push Montague's men from the wall and thrust his maids to the wall. The quarrel is between our masters and us their men. Tis all one. I will show myself a tyrant. When I have fought with the men, I will be civil with the maids. I will cut off their heads. He means he will take their maidenheads or virginity. The heads of the maids? Aye, the heads of the maids. Or their maidenheads. <laughs> take it in what sense you wilt. They must take it in the sense that feel it. Me they shall feel while I am able to stand, and tis known I am a pretty piece of flesh. Tis well thou art not fish, 
If thou hadst, thou hadst been poor John. Samson is incredibly arrogant, and Gregory tries to calm him down with this reference to a poor John or a dried hake, which is a cheap fish to buy. But then two servants of the Montagues enter, and Gregory is immediately confrontational. Draw thy tool. Here comes the house of the Montagues. Of course, tool can be the metal sword, but also the penis. So we have this sense that the Capulet servants want to fight, but also they want to humiliate the Montagues, desecrate their homes and have their women. Shakespeare makes it funny with bawdy sexual humour, but underneath it's the talk of war of raping and pillaging and hatred towards your enemies. In the tradition of British theatre, the servants of families very often mirror who they work for, but in an exaggerated way. Samson and Gregory are fired up, ready to fight, when two servants from the house of Montague take the stage. My naked weapon is out. Quarrel, I will back thee. So Samson talks the talk, but faced with the Montague servants, pushes Gregory to start the argument. How? Turn thy back and run. Fear me not. No, marry. I fear thee. Gregory is afraid that Samson will get them into a fight, but Samson says... Let us take the law of our sides. Let them begin. Make them start the fight, then we'll look like the innocent party. I will frown as I pass by and let them take it as they list. Nay, as they dare. I will bite my thumb at them, which is disgrace to them if they bear it. Now, this was considered a big insult, and still is today. So he deliberately walks over to Abraham and bites his thumb. Do you bite your thumb at us, sir? I do bite my thumb, sir. Do you bite your thumb at us, sir? This is lovely. Samson has been acting all tough, but backs down when Abraham challenges him and whispers to Gregory. Is the law of our side if I say aye? No. From the chorus, we know that... The